Welcome to Dealcast, the weekly M&A podcast presented to you by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. I'm Juliana Needham, a business journalist who's been covering M&A for a decade. In this episode, we're looking at M&A activity in the US during the past year. I'm joined by Kevin Ketchum and Kevin McCaffrey, who are both columnists for Deal Reporter's Morning Flash. Hi, Kevin and Kevin. Thanks very much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Julian. Let's start by looking at the biggest deal of 2022, Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard. What were the motivations around that deal? And how do you think the prospects of it closing are, given the deal's very widespread? So Microsoft trails Sony and console market share. So their aim is to buy up one of the biggest studios in Activision and then make its future titles exclusive to its own console in the hope that will put it on a more level playing field with its biggest competitor. There's a timing element here as well. Microsoft found Activision at a particularly vulnerable point in its history. The company was facing a lawsuit from the state of California over allegations of workplace harassment and discrimination when Microsoft approached Activision about this takeover. But even prior to this deal, there's been significant consolidation in the sector. Take-Two struck a nearly $12 billion acquisition of mobile game developer Zynga just weeks prior to the Microsoft Activision announcement. And then two years ago, Microsoft bought another major game studio in ZeniMax. If you go back even further in 2015, Activision acquired the studio behind Candy Crush, known as King, for $6 billion. And the same month, Microsoft acquired Activision. Sony bought another well-known studio, Bungie. So this is all to say that major studios have been getting snapped up left and right leading up to this deal. And now with Activision seemingly off the board, there's plenty of speculation about where this leaves some of the remaining players like Ubisoft and Electronic Arts. As for the prospects of a close, the spread on this deal has been hovering in that mid to high 20% range. So the market is sending a pretty clear signal that it sees a strong chance of a break here. And anyone paying attention knows that this spread is really driven by the deal's pending antitrust reviews. Right now, the merger needs approval from regulators in the U.S., in Brussels from the European Commission, the U.K.'s Competition and Markets Authority, as well as from China's SAMR. Just last week, the Federal Trade Commission sued to block the deal, arguing that Microsoft could keep Activision games from its rivals and that way reduce competition and hurt consumers, essentially a theory of vertical harm. Those are much more difficult to prove in court, thinking about the Department of Justice failing to stop AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner, and even more recently, the court allowing Illumina's takeover of Grail. So I think there's reason to be skeptical of the FTC's chances in blocking the deal here. I imagine investors are more worried about maybe the cumulative effect of all these concurrent regulatory views, and that even if one of them is unable to successfully block the deal on its own, that there's a reasonable enough chance that one of them will, or that the companies will ultimately cut their losses and walk away at some point. Yeah, and it's certainly something we've covered in previous episodes, looking at the European antitrust challenges the deal is facing. So coming to you, Kevin Ketchum, the software sector has been a very active target for private equity during 2022. What are the factors that have led to this? And do you see the trend continuing? Because we're seeing a broader downturn in tech, aren't we? Yes, uh, there was certainly a drop in North American M&A from the historical levels we saw in 2021, but there was still plenty of activity. Overall, there was over half a trillion dollars spent on U.S. software targets this year, which is approaching record levels of tech as a percentage of total U.S. M&A activity. Uh, As mentioned, software was a big focus really right out of the gate with January's $16.5 
billion dollar take private of Citrix Systems by Vista Equity and Elliott Management's Evergreen Coast. That actually ended up holding onto the top spot in terms of largest US LBOs during the year. Though there was still plenty of mega deals with private equity, including two more software LBOs north of $10 billion with Hellman and Friedman led consortium acquiring Zendesk and Tomo Bravo's acquisition of Anaplan. There are also several pockets of strong activity within software, cybersecurity being one of the standouts uh, with a lot of companies shifting to more of a hybrid work model after the COVID-19 pandemic. There was even greater demand for cybersecurity thanks to more remote work. And while we did see some strategic deals in the space like Google's roughly $5.5 billion acquisition of Mandiant announced back in March, private equity was particularly active with Tomo Bravo alone announcing deals for three identity management companies this year, coming to a total of $12 billion for three. So this is a trend we're likely to see continue well into the new year, as a lot of these conditions don't seem to be changing anytime soon. There's a huge amount of dry powder out there. Uh, Tomo Bravo announced completing its latest fundraising effort in early December, which included the largest tech buyout fund in history, coming in at $24.3 billion. And the firm really wasted no time just earlier this week announcing the $8 billion acquisition of Coupa Software. So as you mentioned, the um, tech market has really seen a downturn. Uh, the S&P North American Technology Software Index has lost 33% year-to-date. So a lot of the public market valuations in the space have come down significantly this year. Uh, so combine that with the enormous war chest right now for private equity, uh, specifically tech-focused private equity, and it doesn't seem like this trend is going to slow anytime soon. Great. Thank you. And Kevin McCaffrey, coming back to you, we recently saw the largest healthcare merger of the year, Amgen's $28 billion acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics. Can you talk us through what brought that deal together and also what it might suggest about M&A for the pharmaceutical sector going into 2023? Yeah, of course. So Amgen was facing a number of looming patent expirations for some of its best-selling drugs and clearly felt compelled to try and get ahead of that by adding a billion dollars in cash flows from Horizon's rare disease portfolio. I think more interesting, though, is where the price tag for this deal ultimately came in. So Amgen's paying $116.50 per share for Horizon, or just a hair under its 52-week high. In September and October of this year, we noticed a trend among transactions in the sector, with target companies starting to get acquired at or below where they went public. With this deal now coming in under Horizon's high point for the year, that has us wondering if we're now seeing a new equilibrium for deal valuations. Biotech has had a difficult year, to put it mildly, following a number of high-profile clinical failures and a general lack of deal flow. One way we've seen buyers and sellers try to bridge the valuation gap this year is with CVRs or contingent value rights. These are essentially earnouts if the target company's assets hit certain sales or regulatory milestones after the deal closes. We've seen a significant uptick in those kind of add-ons for deals this year as a way to find common ground in an otherwise underwhelming year for M&A during this downturn. The other interesting through line here is large drug companies increasingly looking for approved products generating revenues or simply making bets on developmental assets. We've seen that with Pfizer's takeover of Biohaven and Global Blood Therapeutics, and there was also Merck's rumored interest in CGN over the summer, and of course this week's announcement for Horizon. Given how much dry powder there is in this sector, I would expect we'll see a more steady flow of deals in biotech come 2023. Great, thank you. And staying with you, Kevin McCaffrey, 
There's been a lot of tough antitrust talk coming out of the Biden administration, particularly from the Federal Trade Commission chair, Lena Khan, and also the head of antitrust at the Department of Justice, Jonathan Cantor. Can you tell us how that's all going to impact some of the bigger regulatory reviews for outstanding transactions in North America going into the new year? We've obviously touched on one of those, the Activision Blizzard deal. Yeah, I think that's an important topic. And, and you know, we've already discussed Activision Blizzard a little bit, There's but there's one specific point on that deal I really want to hone in on. So the FTC, in laying out its case, defined the relevant markets as consisting of just high-performance console consoles, of which it names Sony and Microsoft and their PlayStation and Xbox, and I think surprisingly omitted Nintendo. It's not difficult to reason why they would do that. It's so they can essentially say this market is a duopoly. But I, I think it also fails to take into account how these three companies really compete with each other. Microsoft felt it was necessary to sign a 10-year pledge with Nintendo to keep Activision's best-selling game, Call of Duty, on its platform very recently. That seems to be at odds with how the FTC is presenting market dynamics in its complaint, and so it's worth keeping an eye on if that plays a role in how the courts size up this legal challenge. Kroger's takeover of Albertsons is another deal that's going to get a hard look from regulators. State attorneys generals are already trying to stop a special dividend payout to Albertsons shareholders, that was announced in conjunction with that deal. And I think that could set the tone for how you might expect regulars to evaluate this tie-up going forward. These combined grocers are expected to rank second in overall market share behind Walmart, and the companies have already said they anticipate having to make divestitures to address certain geographic overlaps. Kroger has defended the deal, saying that more and more grocery sales are coming from online retailers, and that it needs to scale up to compete with the likes of Amazon. We're still in the early innings of this deal, as the termination date can be pushed well beyond this year. But I think if that's the company's primary defense, essentially pointing at Amazon as the boogeyman, I think that may be a difficult argument to lean on to defend a horizontal merger like this one. We've seen retailers try to make this argument before, thinking about Staples and Office Depot back in 2016, when they tried to make the case that they needed a merge to compete with those online offerings. The FTC sued to block that deal, saying saying it would still significantly reduce competition in the office supplies market. A federal judge agreed with them, and so they ultimately abandoned the deal. It's worth wondering if a similar argument made for grocers could fall on deaf ears unless regulators are really willing to expand that definition of relevant markets. Right, thank you. And Kevin Ketchum, bringing you back in here and sticking with the regulatory theme, do you see any particular trends playing out on the regulatory front during 2023? Yes, one interesting trend that has really picked up recently as far as antitrust is uh, regulatory focus on board representation, specifically private equity representatives on boards. The Department of Justice has been talking up a renewed focus on the Clayton Act. Uh, Section 8 of the Act bars interlocking directorates, so directors and officers can't simultaneously serve on the boards of competitors. And back in October, the DOJ announced that seven directors had resigned from the boards of five companies after concerns from the antitrust division. And among those were some private equity representatives. Though not all sat on two boards, it seemed the DOJ was not only targeting individuals holding the dual roles, but considers interlocks where different representatives of the same sponsor sit on competing boards. And since then, we've seen additional resignations of private equity representatives on boards. So that official release announcing those resignations, the DOJ specifically said this was the first in a broader review of potential interlocking directorates. So it certainly sounds as though this is going to remain one of the regulators' priorities into the new year. So it's not exactly clear how broad 
um, the review is going to be. But for now, it's going to at least affect how some of these major private equity firms select boards of some companies. And if things really ramp up, there's the potential that this increased scrutiny could begin to limit the universe of potential targets or investments that some of these giant private equity firms would otherwise have considered based on what their current portfolio of companies looks like. Great. Thank you. And staying with you, Kevin Ketchum, the SEC's universal proxy rule is now in effect, and that requires all director nominees to be on one card. How is this likely to impact activism during the new year and the coming proxy season? Yes, this was a major development as far as activism is concerned. While you previously had two proxy cards for contested situations, you now have all the nominees on one card. That really reduces the time and resources previously needed to put together a dissident slate of directors and send out your own proxy cards. So with an easier path and certainly less expensive uh, now for a proxy fight, we could see funds that um, are typically more passive or in prior years may have been on the fence now decide to go ahead with nominating candidates for the boards of companies. And while the market has rebounded a bit over the past two months after some lows made back in mid-October, when the S&P 500 was down almost 25% on the year, there's still plenty of companies who've seen their stock prices really get hit, which adds a lot of pressure on management and boards to boost stockholder value. And we're already coming off a real busy year for activists. So with some declining stock prices and what is now an easier path to nominate directors to boards, things are shaping up for a very busy 2023 in terms of shareholder activism. Though it does remain to be seen whether uh, more fights are actually won under these new universal rules, but it's a safe bet that there are certainly going to be more nominations to the board, which in itself could add pressure on incumbent directors. And then with that, there's also an M&A angle that typically accompanies a lot of these activist campaigns, be it pushing for a sale of the company or a breakup or divestiture of a segment or business that may not necessarily be the best fit for a company or say a shareholder believes would be a better fit somewhere else or should be spun off as a separately traded company. So while this new era of universal proxies is likely to bring even more activist campaigns, that's likely to help spur on additional M&A activity as well. Great, thank you. And Kevin McCaffrey, bringing you back in here, a question for both of you. Is there anything that you think is worth keeping an eye on for the year ahead? Yeah, I think for the year ahead, you know, like I talked about, I think especially um, in the pharmaceutical area, there's some expectations for a lot of deal flow. Going into 2022, it was expected to be a gangbusters year. You had a lot of drug companies that made a lot of money off COVID vaccines, had uh, you know some of their drugs coming off patent. There was every expectation that they were going to drive that money into new deals. We didn't really see it coming. There was some concerns about the Federal Trade Commission that they might come down hard on, on those deals. We never really see that come to fruition. They look a little toothless. So I think going into 2023, you know, there's ever reason to expect it to pick up and it might start happening as soon as the JP Morgan Health Conference in the next you know couple of weeks. Great. And, and Kevin Ketchum, what, what are your thoughts for 2023? Um, I would just add that as far as strategic deals, uh, we may see some type of tipping point one way or the other with a lot of industries experiencing a rising cost with inflation recently, there's likely going to be sort of a shift in focus from growth towards more profitability and cost cuts. So whether that means pulling back um, strategic deals or uh, expanding strategic deals and consolidating to help cut costs uh, remains to be seen. Great. Kevin and Kevin, thanks very much. 
That was Kevin Ketchum and Kevin McCaffrey, both columnists for Deal Reporter's Morning Flash. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Dealcast presented by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. Please rate, review and follow the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or look out for your Merger Market news alert. For more information, have a look at our show notes. Join us next week for another episode.